Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and making it as a woman in music. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shayna Roth, senior producer at Slate. Later in the show, I'm going to be joined by musician Dessa. She's got a new album out, and she's an expert in being a woman in the music industry. I've been thinking about music a lot lately. I'm in a bit of a podcast rut, surprising, I know, given my career. So I've started listening to music more, putting the old Spotify on shuffle and seeing what happens, even though I've never been what you'd call a music person. I'm suddenly listening to a lot of Taylor Swift. Don't ask why, it just sort of happened. And like I do with any new interest, I found myself doing a lot of Googling, which got me thinking about how fans and haters alike have treated Taylor Swift over the years. It hasn't always been good. In fact, a lot of it hasn't been good. But then the collective we have never been great to our female artists. I did some digging into equality and awards and the music charts. In 2022, only 30% of artists on the Billboard Hot 100 year-end chart were women, which is actually a drastic improvement. Women are less likely to win non-gender Grammys and other awards. They have to work harder to get half as far as male musicians. We expect more from them, but treat their output as less than. Even with artists like Taylor and Beyonce having the biggest tours of the year, people still question their validity as artists and question the topics they choose to sing about. The attacks can be especially vicious when it comes to breakup music. I want you to hear a song. Now, I mean, really listen to this. It's a call of your It's called Call Off Your Ghost. The narrator sees her ex across the room. He wants to be friends, but while she's trying to move on, the pain of not being with him is too much. She can't be friends. It hurts too much. She needs to get past this. And now we're not so young I wish gonna dry. We've been living too long, too close, and That's from indie artist Dessa, and, well, if your heart is broken, you could do a lot worse than trying to work your way through it by listening to her music. Dessa knows a lot about being a woman in the music industry, especially the indie music industry. She also writes quite a few heartbreak songs. Basically, Dessa is perfect for what I want to talk about today. So after the break, I'm going to be joined by her to dig into her background and what it's like to be a female indie artist. Spoiler alert, sometimes men think it's okay to not pay you. And then we're going to explore the breakup song. Why it's expected for women to write them, but men get extra credit when they sing them. All that and more after this break. Hey, Waves listeners, we really hope that you're loving the show. And if you are, you should subscribe to our feed. We give you new episodes every Thursday morning. And while you're there, you should definitely check out our other episodes too. We've actually been doing this really fun Golden Bachelor recap that actually comes out every Friday. And if you're interested in some of our previous Waves regular episodes, you could check out last week's episode on why macho men are just running amok on the campaign trail. We've also been talking about the WNBA, reality dating shows in general, and the case for taking a sabbatical. 
Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth, and I'm joined now by Dessa. Dessa, welcome to The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. You are many things. Honestly, I think your publicist, Josh, who scheduled this interview, really said it best. He said, Dessa is an independent touring female artist who has not only thrived in the music space, but has branched successfully into the world of writing several books of poetry and a memoir, academia, and podcasting. So you are all of those things, and all of them are areas, I think, where it's difficult for women to really thrive and to stand out and make their mark. Which area of your career has been the most difficult for you as a woman? You know, I would say that I think I have been helped and hurt by being a woman and particularly like in a in a performance space. You know, I started my career in a hip hop crew. And at that time, there were some, but not too many women working in that field. So it was, it was pretty asymmetrical. You know, if you were a member of a hip hop crew, likely you were the only member who was a woman of that hip hop crew, you know? And I would say that the most dramatic moments where I was like most keenly aware of a headwind uh, due to my gender would be, I remember I was trying to settle a show. So you're trying to get paid for a show. I'd sold it out. I was feeling good. It was late. I'd also had a couple of drinks and I was in the basement, which is where money changes hands, to be honest, usually after a performance, you know? And I remember the person who was settling up with me tried to pay me just a fraction of my promised price. And, and I said, I sold this place out, you know? And they kind of begged off and tried to stick to this. I mean, I sound like, <laughs> you know, a new Matoya, like, this is my promise. I was, and, and I, and I ended up leaving the room and, you know, grabbing one of the dudes, you know, another male rapper in the scene who accompanied me to return to that small room. And then I was handed the appropriate stack of cash. But I remember that moment, you know, it was so on the nose that it feels almost kind of eye rollingly scripted, right? Like, okay, let me go grab the heavy, um, in an effort to simply have a, signed and agreed to contract be honored. But to be honest, those those moments were fewer and farther between than a lot of grayer areas where, you know, I remember meeting with a VP of a very fancy label and I'm nervous. This might be a chance for me. You know, I'm indie, right? So I was unsigned. And I remember him greeting me with a note about, uh, you know, as we met at a restaurant, like, oh, what cheekbones. And there's nothing malicious necessarily in that comment, but it's really hard to imagine him meeting with one of my male counterparts and going, what a jawline. <laughs> Possible, but really unlikely. And so I think for me, it's in those, it's in the the areas when even when you're receiving praise, it feels like it's allocated to the wrong compartment of what you're presenting, right? The way that women's bodies and looks and presentation is evaluated on like such different metrics than dudes. So because you're an indie artist, do you think that that has helped you or hurt you when it comes to dealing with these type of both macro and micro aggressions based on your gender? I have had a few moments <laughs> where they're, like I mentioned, you know, in that kind of basement settling, there was not a lot of ambiguity. Like you're just being a dick. And you're trying to you're trying to get one over because you think you can. And that's based on gender, period. And of course, you know, as incensed as I was like that, it you know, that story is easy to tell. Right. Like I'm a heroine and this dude's a total dick and there's not a lot of moral ambiguity. And what's right is right. OK, I think it's more complicated to acknowledge the fact that, you know, all of us who grew up 
in in the country that we have and in the time period which we have are are breathing in an air that is permeated with the particulate of racism and sexism and classism and to sort of ask myself to to do some introspection as well so like it feels good when somebody praises you right to be mindful of the kind of praise that you're soliciting. I think very often, like, you know, we want to go where we receive positive feedback. And to, to bring it back, for example, to the looks thing, like, I think it takes an act of some self-discipline to try to restrain oneself from traveling down the avenue where praise is most accessible to the avenue where praise is most appropriate. Or to be mindful of, even if you're winning for the wrong reasons, how one might contribute to like a a better world, you know, how one might marginally nudge the culture in a fairer direction. So when I think about the way that like youth and beauty work in the music industry, I mean, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with celebrating youth, beauty, sex, like those are parts of life, that's rad. But I think they're really over-indexed and they become table stakes. Not something you can exceed in, but something you must exceed in to participate in other ways. That's such a great point, and I think it's a point that really can manifest really in any career. I know that I am very much a people pleaser. I am very much someone who loves to get praise for everything. It's why I work really hard, but also it took me a long time, particularly when I was growing up and and becoming more and more of a career person to realize that oh no it's 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 not okay for somebody to be for a man to be complimenting you about your looks or to be, you know, you, you gotta, it takes a while to figure out like, where is this line where compliments can be drawn? Because, you know, it's nice if like I'm wearing something cool and somebody mentions it, you know, that that's great. But then it becomes like, okay, well, is that like, what is the intention there? It's, it's just, it's so gray and weird and murky and it must be really difficult, particularly in such a sort of visual Yeah. Uh, career that you have. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think there it can be so much second guessing. I think in a workplace, it's maybe even more complicated there, right? Because you've got HR rules, you've got the scrutiny of the fluorescent lights, where it is more casual in my industry. Do you know what I mean? Very often your workday starts at like, you know, 8 p.m. And, and you're wearing clothes that are supposed to be rad, you know, or sexy or whatever. And everybody's got a cocktail. So I I think there are so many opportunities to to second guess and to maybe, you know, spend too much time worrying over fine lines. But I think it's probably because we're in a, you know, in a moment of flux and change. And yes, I think it's possible to over police. And also, I think if there isn't some grace and generosity, then we're sort of hitting the whole thing wrong. Meaning, you know, if somebody says, oh, you look great and it made you, you know, and, and you felt like, well, I wish they were competent to me on something else. It is likely that you have said something dumb in the past week, too. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. I, I'm not trying to take a cattle prod to anybody who's like, yo, rad skirt. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. I bought it because I thought it was rad, too. You know, <laughs> um, but... I think it becomes tricky for all of us, even just to do the math, like what constitutes an instance and what constitutes like a pattern of systemic trend, right? So yeah. I love getting a compliment because you look rad or well-rested or like, yeah, looking fit, hitting the gym. That's always awesome. Except if my primary contribution to the world is how I look, right? And so I think by over-indexing beauty, you know, everything from like when we hear 
kids in strollers, right? If they're in a pink stroller, it's, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Look at those cheeks. And if it's a blue stroller, it's, make a muscle. Look at that strapping young man. Exactly. A soccer player on your hands. You know what I mean? And so, so that's tricky, right? Because it's a matter of proportions. It's nothing's totally off limits, right? I mean, a compliment or a critique, but trying to f- be mindful of the ways that we balance those priorities in our own heads too. Do you know what I mean? I am more likely to compliment a female friend rocking a rad skirt than I am a male dude, Yeah, you know, um, a male friend. And so um, being mindful of the fact that we all drank the Kool-Aid and we're all swimming against a similar current and how to handle that with grace. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about switching around because you do a lot of switching around in your music. You started out in the Minneapolis hip hop collective Doom Tree, and there's these great pictures of you with the rest of Doom Tree. And as you mentioned, you're the only woman, as is pretty common with hip hop collectives. And then you went on to do more and more solo work. And you've said in the past that when you're with the collective, you're jumping, it's loud, it's high energy, it's kind of aggressive. Full figure, nah, full facts. Bad for ten key, better with the black big ratchet clip for garter bells. Gone Sally Hansen, ill hard as hell. That moonshine and a champagne flute, old English and a new tattoo. What we do to be the last man standing, break an ankle to stick the landing. And I'll be singing in the silo, let that echo clear my head. Learn to tolerate the eye cane, got real good at playing dead. Call to arms, young statuettes, coquettings, clever yet bit. Venus de Milo's better with her bayonet. But when you're solo, you tend to take on this this sadder sound and you kind of switch into a more mellow type of vibe. What do you attribute this switch to? Yeah, you know, I think in part it had to do with, you know, we have five rappers and two producers for the most part in Doomtree. And many of the rappers also produced. But the music that we made was a product of the sort of overlapping Venn diagram of the pedals, right, of all of our interests. So some of those cats were really into punk. Some of those cats were really into old school rap. Some of them are into, like, kind of psychedelic rock some, you know, crate diggers too, right? Oh, look at this cool, you know, French record from 67, that kind of thing. And I was interested, you know, since I was a kid in some kind of melancholic sounds. I love vocal harmony for me. That's, uh, that's, uh, one of the favorite parts of music making and often music listening. So I think in some ways it was that my natural proclivities were untempered when I'm working by myself. I have no one stylistically to report to but me. So maybe it wasn't as much a product of a gendered decision as it was just my native tastes. But I would say that like at the beginning of my career particularly, which is years and years ago now, right? Like I was really aware of the assumptions in an audience that I was fighting against because I was a woman. So if you've seen those old pictures, I'm like just over 5'10". I have like brown hair. I'm half Puerto Rican and um maybe a buck 45. In those images, um I'm often wearing like really bad size 16 drawstring pants with boxer shorts rolled over the top, right? And a huge, you know, XL hoodie. And in part, I was so apprehensive about like anticipating and rebutting the accusation that the reason I had a job was because I was leveraging sex appeal, right? That I would cloak, (laughs) you know, that I was like hiding any 
um, suggestion of a female form because I didn't, I just did not want to handle that, uh, that accusation. And it was made anyway. And yeah, even just like, you know, I was dating somebody in the crew. I think it's pretty rare if a, whoever Haim's boyfriend is, I bet he is not called Yoko <laughs> And that was really common then, you know, if you were dating a cat, a guy in a crew, not from within the crew itself, but from outside, like, oh, she's going to mess it up somehow or she's going to distract people. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was I was really aware of gendered expectations and particularly with sexuality. And how did that change when you started doing solo work? Three things probably happened. One, I was spending a bunch of time more on stage, probably <laughs> seeing myself in pictures and looking like, yo, however you're deciding to do this. I, I had sort of wanted to excuse myself from being a visual entity. That's what I wanted. I just wanted to be a sonic entity. But you can't do that in a live show. You just are sending visual signal whether you care to or not, which is non-negotiable. And so seeing pictures where I just looked sloppy, it was like, you're not making a deliberate choice. You just look like you slept in that because I had. <laughs> and so as I, you know, throughout the years, it's like, okay, then there's like a huge kind of oversized man's painter shirt that I remember wearing for like most of one tour. And then at some point, whether it was in the heat of South by Southwest, you know, it's hot in, in Austin, Texas, like wearing a, like wearing a tank top and whether it was a post hoc justification or not being like, yo, you deferring and demurring to these accusations by being hyper, hyper, hyper modest is allowing your career to be dictated by gendered expectations just as much as if you were try to leverage uh, sexuality that you're so afraid to. Like, hey, the beauty industry or the music industry expects you to wear latex. So you only wear enormous cotton oversized hoodies. Like, what would you wear if left to your own devices, irrespective of event of expectation, you know? So, yeah, I did start wearing slightly more, like the kind of st stuff I'd wear on the street, you know? Also, I was jumping less, and this might be like to TMI, but like, I remember having a really sweet conversation. Like, that, that crew, Doomtree, was enormously supportive of me enormously supportive and i was i was way less aware of my gender when we were working and writing songs than i was when we were in front of audiences the audience made me aware of it and that crew didn't but i remember one of them being like yo yeah i'm a i'm i'm a big breasted woman and he was like you know you might want to consider a doubling up on sports bras and that's like such a an intimate thing to say and it bur you burn such a blush and i was really glad he said that because i I did. And I, you can see where audiences are looking when you're performing. And I liked attention returning, you know, to, what, to the work. Mm -hmm. How have you felt that the audience has changed in their reception of you over the years? Do you think that they have changed or have you changed? I do. Yeah, I think I said uh, three things have changed and then I just sort of rambled. I think that also audience expectations have changed. One in that, you know, we don't have like a, an impermeable membrane or, or border anymore between like pop music and rap. You know, those, those two, those two genres have just intermingled a lot more. So culturally uh, they're, they're more reconcilable and compatible. But I think also, you know, we have so many more conversations about beauty, about like expanding its definition. I wish we had more conversations about reducing its general importance, but we have a lot. Yeah, we have a lot of convos there. So I think, A, when I see pictures of myself now, like I have slightly expanded my standards. Like whether or not I'm a, you know, whether or not I'm a 
perfectly pure feminist at heart intellectually, I am just as subject to like the vanities and insecurities as any other person living in a body, maybe particularly a woman's body, right? I want to look a certain way and it bothers me when I don't and it hurts my feelings more than it should when people comment on it. And I think our, yeah, like our expansion of different shapes, different sizes, different weights particularly has been overall good. And I think, you know, we as a culture are a lot less likely to accuse somebody. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Dessa and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're talking about Dessa's many unique collaborations. It involves shadow puppeteers and neuroscientists, among others. You're not going to want to miss that. If you are a Slate Plus member, thank you so, so much for your contributions to Slate. It's because of members like you that we are able to do shows like this. And if you're not, please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast. You don't hit the paywall on the Slate site. And then, of course, you get bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth. I'm back here with Dessa, and we are talking about her music career. And honestly, I really want to talk about breakup songs because I've been thinking about them a lot lately, despite being married for many years (laughs) (laughs) and not having a need for them. But I do love the angsty tunes that you throw on to get over an aching heart. And honestly, I wish I had your music when I was in college. I feel like there was not as much uh, angst, breakup, great just put it on and sob your heart out music when I was in college. And you said in a TED talk in 2018 that your mom told you, quote, you always make music to bleed out to. But over the course of my career, I'd written so many sad love songs that I got messages like this from fans. Release new music or a book. I need help with my breakup. And after performing and recording and touring those songs for a long time, I found myself in a position in which my professional niche was essentially romantic devastation. Why do you write about love in all of its devastation? Gosh, I mean, I think, I think that really is one of the principal pursuits. You know, e- not that romance is be-all and end-all because it's not, but I do think that it takes an, up a disproportionate amount of our time and attention. And I think I think also romance can be such shorthand for like the drive to feel connected to other people on the planet. Do you know what I mean? It can be shorthand for isolation or alienation or rejection, like these sort of elemental feelings and the brightest colors on the canvas of our lives. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason that so many artists and songwriters gravitate towards it. But also, I'll just say, I think I take it hella hard. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I, I think that objectively and factually, I take it hella, hella hard. Do you think of breakup songs and love songs and just sort of like sad music in general as being a more feminine genre? I mean, or a genre of music that touches women more than men? Ooh, you turned it on the last... On the last dime possible there. You know, I think that even though 
men and women experience the pain of breakups, that we have a different expectation for how they experience that in the world. And the way that our culture is, is built allows for different sorts of expression. So, for example, this is trend and trope almost to the point of like character caricature, right? But but that idea that um, that is, I think, is supported by some social science research about, you know, women have this network of, of platonic friends, right? So you break up with somebody, your heart is excised from your body. You have people to cry to on the phone with. And that's not as true for as many men on occasion, right? Like very often, they're one meaningful confidant for sensitive, vulnerable information, like in a cishet environment anyway, right? was you, you know, it was their partner. And so when that safe harbor is removed, like all you have is enemy waters or, or you know, light, lighter conversations. I, th- I think I think there is something to be said for the fact that in, maybe not in artist culture and maybe not in like media culture as much, but in big parts of American culture, I think dudes do pay higher prices for like crying on a train. And I think you've hit on something there because I think that the cultural expectation post-breakup is women are eating ice cream. I mean, when you think of like, a, like a, when you think of a couple broken up and you put them into two separate rooms, you think of the woman is eating ice cream, watching Bridget Jones's diary and crying about it to her friends. And the dude is like going out to the bar to get some, to get laid, to get over this girl. And if he has any buddies, they're just telling him man, there's other women, just go and have some sex and it'll be fine. And that's sort of like long been our expectations of what a breakup looks like in a cishet relationship. I agree completely. And I think, you know, even if those those images of like Rocky Road and running eyeliner are exaggerated, I do think that there's some there's some truth to that. And that said, you get into the music. How how is it how is how are those feelings expressed in music? I think you do have sort of like um not rarefied era, but a specialized data set because you're talking about people whose jobs it is to sort of emote <laughs> for a living. So in some way, I think the expectations of dudes in music, you know, like country songs, right? Mm-hmm. Lost my car, lost my lady, lost my cat, whatever. Lost my, I shouldn't say cat. They're more dog people. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you sort of have license, you know, to, to, for that sort of expression. That said, this is like my eighth however in a, in a, in the sentence, but that said, I do think it's possible that when you hear a male voice singing about heartache, you're inclined to give him like a little bit of extra credit because like, shut up. Michael's being intimate. Michael has serious something to say. Michael's opening up. Whereas when you hear a woman, it's like, yeah, well, obs, you know, obviously, <laughs> if you have feelings, they're going to say them. So I do think that even though both, male and female voices might sing about heartache, that those voices might hit audiences' ears and their attendant gendered expectations in different ways. Do you think because of that, there's an expectation that if you're a female artist, you got to have a catalog about heartache? I mean, I would imagine it varies a little bit by genre. You know, I think about like, what is the expectation for, for rappers? I think versus if I were a singer-songwriter with a big hollow-bodied guitar, you know what I mean? Versus if I was in like a metal band or something. I do think that for rap, the general expectation is to, you know, it is slightly more to be commentary about the world, the culture, and modern American society if that rap is made here. 
But I think that part of the reason that breakup songs are so ubiquitous is because the feelings are so big and the feelings are what powers the pen. You know, it's like when you're in the throes of that, in a big, irresolvable feeling, um, I think that kind of discomfort is exactly like the grist for the mill for, for, for art. So what about in other mediums? I mean, you write poetry, for example. Are, you, are the expectations different there? Yeah, I would say that for me anyway, I'm so much more aware of the perils of writing about heartache and breakups, essentially, on the page than I am on stage. Maybe it's also because I can moderate what might seem maudlin or whining or, you know, the concerns, right? I don't want to be perceived as melodramatic, as whining, as, ang- you know, angst is fine, but but there's a line. And I can modify that by like lifting my eyebrow and 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 a, and a sarcastic expression and sort of like diffusing the emotional content with a funny one-liner or a barb. And on the page, you don't have the opportunity. Like you don't have, you're not in control of timing. The reader's in control of that. And you just have so many fewer handles. You have something like 13 punctuation marks and 26 letters. And that's kind of it. You can hit the space bar a couple of times or return. But the reader is bringing so, so much to it that I'm more, I guess I'm more worried is what I'm saying about like seeming hella unduly sentimental on the page. I know that artists like Taylor Swift have in the past gotten a lot of flack for writing too many breakup songs or having too much of their emotions, particularly revolving their relationships in their music. Is there kind of like um like a double standard almost? We expect female artists to talk about heartache. It's something that we want to hear from them. But also if you do it too much, well, yeah. then we can't take you seriously. That's an interesting question. Can you think of a, a male artist who writes mostly about about heartache that we don't criticize in the way that we have criticized Taylor Swift? I don't think I can. I don't think I can either. And partly, I could be. I, I like. I like a lot of Taylor Swift stuff, but I would say that I. Th- I wonder if she would receive as much criticism about the romance songs if the romance songs were really different from one another. Because very often, the tenor that they strike is sort of, you know, if not if not identical, kissing cousins, right? Like, hey, we were in love and, and you were kind of a jerk mm-hmm. and I'm in a lot of pain and I'm, you know, getting over it. As opposed to like, hey, I was a jerk. Mm, <laughs> That's right. a different guy. I'm the asshole song. here. Yeah. A hundred percent. Or like, hey, you're ex-girlfriend deserved better you know where, where, where it's not that you're the you're the aggrieved party yeah it's like you don't want to be too much of a victim in all of it exactly so i feel like it's not just the 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 fact of their heartbreak songs it's that there's this sort of through line where she's the victim of a heartbreak song not every time but but yeah i, I wonder if if she would find herself inoculated from those criticisms if she had a really wide breadth of breakup song you think of a song like um okay dolly parton's jolene 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 right like whoa that's cool jolene jolene That's a really different way to look at love, right? Like a song addressed to the woman who could take your man. It's still, it's still very, it lives in the cishet world. It's very, but, but that's a really different way to make art. You know what I mean? Like, and I think about songs that take this 
you know, eternal discomfort of not quite being loved back the way that you hope to be. There's a thousand ways to write that. You know what I mean? You can you can flip that coin and have it land on, yeah, on, on just like a an innumerable cornices that that metaphor didn't make sense but i think you know what i mean <laughs> it's amazing i've never thought of jolene as being a breakup song it's but it but it is it's, it's like a please don't defend off yeah a it's like a please yeah. don't break up with me song i never really thought of it in those terms but it is and that's an amazing way to look at it yeah i think so and I, i'm such a i'm like i am such a sucker for that for that I, I like that in you know i almost think about it like in a cinemagraphic way or something if you if you were to follow, you know, the main character, you know, when GoPros first started, right? And so you get all these weird, like, oh, this is what it looks like to jump out of the plane, or this is what it looks like from the bottom of the car, or this. And so the idea of following a familiar story, but from a really unfamiliar vantage point, um, I think that that can lend like uh, a freshness of perspective and a newness to to breakup songs. Yeah. What's your favorite breakup song? Oh gosh. Uh, okay, I don't know if this is a breakup song, but the the song that for a lot of years was like almost too intense to listen to. There's a few of them. When I first heard Hallelujah by Jeff mm, Buckley. Buckley, uh, yeah. Or sung by Jeff Buckley, written by Leonard Cohen. And then when my parents were getting divorced, the songs that they would listen to, you know, those are lodged real deep, so... And I try not to play them around them because I know that those must hurt to hear. But like Bonnie Raitt, storm warning feels like a heavy rain. I think that's the line, but it's like the last, the last gasp of something that's ending, and knowing that that was true for them in real time. Yeah. Storm warning feels like a heavy. feel good to say you're a jerk and you left and they're like a tovlo oh my gosh some of that stuff i love so much that was like my last horrible breakup that was the one that was on repeat crying at the gym but i'm also i love i love ones that embrace the ambiguity of it like because you got busted and ruined doesn't actually mean that someone did you wrong they just did you hurt and i like songs that have room to examine that part too Dessa, amazing musician, artist, writer, podcaster, so many things, woman of all trades. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. Dessa's latest album, Bury the Lead, is out now. It's, I mean, just check it out. You won't be sorry. It's fantastic. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth, and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. We would love to hear from you. Please email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place.